So this, this week, I didn't have a lot of time to dream because I didn't have a lot of time to sleep. Uh, Lucas is wondering, like, what's, what's daddy doing? He's home, but he's, like, sleeping really late. Like, because I sleep at 9 a.m., so I'll sleep till about, like, 12. And he's like, why is he not waking up? Because usually by then, I'm up playing with him, and then I go off to work, right? I come to the office. And usually I'm up by about 8, and he sometimes is up by 7.30. He wakes me up. Um, so he's like, why is he still sleeping? And so he'll come, and he'll be like, what's going on with you? <laughs> so, so I didn't really sleep, right? I'm just pretending to sleep. I just like, I don't want to open my eyes. I'm so tired. <laughs> then at night, I'm like, all right, let's go shower. And it's like 8 o'clock. And he's like, why are we showering so early? I was like, I'm going to go to bed. And he's like, why are we going to bed so early? Because I have to wake up at 1 a.m., right? So, and by the time I get to sleep, it's going to be like 10. So this week, I didn't have a lot of, t- lot of time to dream. But dreaming of Esther has been not been a thing that I've just thought about, came up with last week. It's been a thing that I've been thinking about since 2019. And last year really made me really think deeply into this. Uh, think, like, really, what are we doing with the church that God has put into our care? So one of the things that I met up my good friend, uh, Ashu uh, Ryan, uh, two weeks ago, and, and we were secondary school friends. He was my first friend on uh, the bus 800 in Ishun. For those of you who live in Ishun, you know that bus. And uh, we both regret saying hi to each other. Uh, we'll be stuck together for life. Uh, his birthday is on Christmas Eve, so every year I'll go to his house and give him a gift uh, and, and invite him to church because <laughs> he's, he's not a Christian. And, but we, we were in a football team together. Uh, he, his team, he was the manager. He ran it for 10 years. Every Sunday morning, we wake up at 6 o'clock. We go and have our, our economical bihun, and then we play football till 12 o'clock, and then we'll go over and hang out at somebody's place. Um, and we were talking about the, the fact that we can't play football. Like, he can't play. I, I stopped playing a while ago, but he still plays every Sunday. He's like, old man, still playing. And, like, one of the things that he's like, watching the game, it was one of the fa- our favorite pastimes, but to be really involved in the game, you have to play it. You have to play it. You have to be, get on the field, get on the pitch and play it. So one of our dreams, we're both fans of Manchester United, that we were like, go to Old Trafford and play on the field there. Well, he, he did it because he studied in the UK for his uh, bachelor. I, I have not. I want to play in Old Trafford. But then the thing, as true fans of the sport, you don't just want to watch it. If you watch a game, you're a fan. But to be a true fan, you need to play it. Maybe not at a professional level, but that's the dream, right? Growing up, we were like, oh, one day you have to play. It'll be a dream come true. But you have to be involved. You have to participate. You have to, go, you have to kick the ball to understand how it feels like. You need to score a goal to know the ecstasy, the excitement when you score a goal. So when you watch a match, when you see the goal being scored, you're like, wow, because you've done it. How about church? Have you been treating church as a spectator sport? You've, you've sat back and you've, you've watched it happen but you've not embraced what God has truly been promising to give you as His disciple. So today, the question is that I'm asking you, are you a church member or are you a disciple? There is a difference. And I'd like to share with you my dream of what it looks like for Aztec. 
So the question we need to ultimately ask ourselves as followers of Jesus, why do we worship? Why do we worship? Why do we come to church? Why are we yearning to gather together to worship God and sing praises to Him? Why do you worship? Is it to gain more knowledge of God? Is it to to participate in something that you feel will, will bring you more righteousness, will make you more holy? Why do you worship? Why do you why is worship such an important element of the Christian experience? And how do we worship? I've talked about this before, but today I would like to say that we worship God because of what He does. Right? You worship something because of what somebody do. Like, I think somebody is great because of something he has done. The verse, turn with me to John 20, 21 in our scripture reading today. In John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus appears to his disciple after the crucifixion, after his resurrection, just before he leaves, he appears to his disciple and he, he leaves them with these words. In John 20, 21, he says, when he had said this, he said many things before that, you can read it. And he said to them again, peace be with you. We today understand peace as a state of mind, that we can have calmness in the midst of trouble or we think of peace as the absence of bad circumstances, right? When things are going well, we have peace. Or we are like not disturbed by our circumstance, we have trust in God, we feel that that is peace. Yes, that's an element of peace, but in the scripture, peace, shalom, actually means wholeness. So when people used to greet each other, Shabbat Shalom, they say, may you regain wholeness from the Sabbath. It's as though six days shall thou labor, takes away from you, it disturbs your life, it, it, it breaks you down, that you have to come to God on the Sabbath day again to acknowledge Him as your Creator, to remind yourself He's your Creator, they can recreate you back to wholeness, so that you can go through the next week again. And so if you don't remember the Sabbath, you're just allowing yourself to be broken down, attacked, broke, uh, lessened as a person week by week without being recreated and restored. So peace, Shabbat Shalom, it says, when you come to the Sabbath, you are restored to your wholeness. So question number one, when we worship God on the Sabbath, do we receive this healing, this recreation? When we worship God, do we come to Him and receive this, this creative, miraculous, supernatural power that restores us back to where we're supposed to be? But then in this verse, more specifically, it says, May you receive wholeness, peace be with you, as you participate in this next thing that I'm talking about. He says, The Father had sent me. I, he sent me to restore wholeness to you, to die for you on the cross so that you can receive salvation through grace, that you can be restored to wholeness, back to 
even I am sending you. So we worship God because He has restored to us wholeness. He's brought about peace into our lives. He's a God on mission, and that's why we worship Him, because we have received what He has done for us, and He is continuing to do. And when we receive that wholeness, God says, for you to truly be my followers, for you to truly become a Christian, a follower of Christ, to you to wholly experience this, this journey, you have to go and restore wholeness to others. As the Father has sent me, I send you. So there isn't two groups of people who are following Jesus. There isn't one who receives wholeness and, and just sit there enjoying the wholeness. No, there's only one group of people. The group of people is where you receive wholeness from God and then you go and bring wholeness to others. As the Father has sent me, I send you. So it's very different to our current, today, our Christian experience. Today, our Christian experience is feel as though that if you receive Christ, you start coming to church. That's it. You start attending church consistently, frequently. Your attendance is marked. I remember when I was younger, they actually marked your attendance every week. And if you don't, you know, your Sabbath school teacher is supposed to call you, hey, James, I didn't see you at church this week. Um, like school. It's called Sabbath school. I guess that's why. And if you show up, you're fine. But that's not what the Bible talks about. Remember last week I talked about what we measure? We'll create what we, what input will create what output. And what we measure will be the result of what we become. So we're not going to record attendance. And that's not the priority of the church that you show up here. But I think the priority of disciples of Jesus is that you show up in somebody else's life. We have a theology of church and worship. People used to fight over how worship is conducted. People used to fight over the color of the carpet. People used to fight over the color of the wall, the color of what kind of pulpit you use, and where you sit on the stage, who goes up first. But shouldn't we be fighting for a new thing? that we should stop focusing on the theology of just that one, two hours of gathering. We should focus on the theology of the neighborhoods. We should fight over how many people we're bringing to Christ and restoring to holiness. We should fight over how many people's lives we have touched as a disciple of Jesus. We should fight over how often we talk about Jesus day to day, moments to moments. We should fight over whether the person bring, brought to church should have a seat and I should give out my seat for him. So ultimately, as we worship God, we are asking ourselves, what is the heart of God? What is God passionate about? And then we ask ourselves, am I passionate about the same thing? Am I passionate about what God is truly passionate about? Or am I passionate about me and I'm asking God to bless what I want to achieve in my life. Turn me to Luke 19, verse 10.
if you want to explain the heart of God, the heart of God was a question that the disciples continuously asked Jesus about. Show us the Father. Reveal to us who He is. Explain to us who God is. And Jesus consistently, consistently, consistently says, those who have seen me have seen the Father. I am the revealed heart of God. I am the passion. And Jesus says in Luke 19 verse 10, For the Son of Man, speaking of Himself, came to seek and to save the lost. If we are followers of Christ, our passion has to be aligned with His passion. And His passion, His only passion, is not to receive worship. What? And why? Well, James is saying we're not worshiping God is not priority number one. Yes. Because if our priority is worshiping God, then what we'll get will just be members at church. But the priority of God is to seek and save the lost. And as you seek and save the lost, you can't help yourself but worship God. And then we'll get worshipers. Because worship is an experience not prepared by the team who's leading out on the pulpit, on the stage. Worship is a thing prepared by the Holy Spirit in your heart as you seek and save the lost and you come to worship the God who is on that mission. Because you're worshiping a God who are part, you are participating in His mission. And as you worship Him, He says, God, you are on mission and I want to be involved in that. And you come and worship the God who has saved you and are saving in the others who are around you who are lost. And as you restore wholeness to others, you will worship God because you realize how much He's restored you in your life. It takes sometimes a reminder by seeing others, remind how we've been blessed. As with me, like this week, we were talking about church attendance and like, yeah, church, we have to find new space for people to, to worship. And I was talking about how, you know, we can have a maximum, maybe like 50, 60 people, including the helpers. And they're like, James, at least you can do that. I can't. And I have 1,000 members in my church, and my church is the same size as you. And we have the similar rules that the maximum I can have is 50 people. So how many worship services am I going to conduct to cover everybody? And they're in Portland. Portland doesn't have sunshine. If you think the last two weeks of rain is bad, like, like yesterday was the first time I really, like in Singapore, I was just like, ooh, sun, yes. I used to be like, ooh, sun, yuck. Right? <laughs> it's like, ooh, winter, kind of Singapore version of it. But like when the sun came out for the first time in a long time, I was like, ooh, nice. Portland's like Singapore two weeks ago, forever. Like ever, like long time. It's always raining. It's a bit like Melbourne. But Melbourne, you still have like one January month where it's awesome. Portland has no January. So they kind of go outdoors. So as we seek and save the lost, as we go and bring shalom to our community, to our people who are in our circle of influence, we recognize how much shalom God has brought into our lives. I'm going to bring you to the story in Luke chapter 8, a few chapters before. 
where Jesus heals the demonic man, demon-possessed. There's actually three healings here. I won't have time to go through all three. I'm going to focus on this one specific healing. That the story goes from verse 26 of Luke chapter, chapter 28. Then they sailed to the country of Gerasenes, Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. Note that. We always skip over that. This Gerasene, this Decapolis, is near Galilee. Where's Jesus from? Where does he hang out most of his time? When Jesus had stepped out on land, so you can read the story on how he got there, the waves on the sea and all that was before this. Luke jumped straight to when he appeared on the land. There met a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud cry, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. His action was as though he's worshipping Jesus. He fell on his feet and he says, he proclaimed him in the right way. He's the son of the most high God. That This is a proclamation that even his disciple has not really said. And this, this comes from a demon-possessed man. But then his misunderstanding was that God has come to torment him, to torture him, to bring about a burden that he cannot bear, even though he's living already such a tortured life. He says, what have you come to do? You've come to torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time he had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Where did Jesus start his ministry? He went to the wilderness, the desert. Where were the Israelites touring around on a scenic drive for 40 years? In the desert. Seems like encountering God is often in the desert. And, and for him, it was a, like a punishment. But yet, it was where that he would encounter God. Verse 30. Jesus then said, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they, now the, legion, the, the demon speaks, right? In 31. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding near on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter this, so he gave them permission. Do you realize what this verse is talking about? That the demons had to ask who for permission? Jesus. They can't even choose to go away without permission. People always think, yeah, yeah, you can't possess somebody unless God gives you permission. You can't bring about disaster upon somebody's life without God's permission. But here he tells us that you can't even leave this person without God's permission. How much control does God have? Authority and power. That's the God we worship. It's not a helpless God who depends on the vaccine. I'm not against vaccine, just to be clear. I'm just saying that we cannot worship vaccines. We need to worship God. Vaccines could be a way that God is using to help that. But how often do we neglect the supernatural existence, miraculous power of God? The demons have to ask him for permission to go to, into the pigs. Now, verse 33, Then the demons came out of the men and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. 
34, when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Interesting. That when you see something that Jesus does, even if it's an act by the demon, you can't help yourself when you tell people about it. There is a confrontation of a choice to be made whenever you see that act of God. 2020 was not pleasant. And some people have told me it's demonic. It's, it's the devil's work in trying to prevent the church from, from functioning, from worshippers, from gathering. I agree. But then God has to give permission. The devil doesn't have authority to supersede God's power on earth. Even if he wants to bring about destruction, the demon, not God, he has to ask God for permission. Why did God permit COVID-19? Have you ever thought about it, that God permitted COVID-19 to happen? Can't be, right? God wouldn't allow that. Maybe God allowed it to remind us that our focus should not be life on earth for eternity because 2019 felt like it. Everything was going well. Life was good. Church was good. Getting to a place where it was awesome. Economy was like, boom, way crazy. Even in COVID, like, some economy was still booming crazy. It was amazing. Money was abundant. Shops was being opened everywhere. Restaurants were everywhere. Just in Topayo, where I live, it went from like two bubble tea shops to ten. I'm like, why do you need so many? There was three in a row. I'm like, me and Tim and Lucas were walking like, why so many? Then 2020 happened, and people think that the bubble tea can cure COVID, and it became like the commodity. But God allowed COVID-19 to happen. Why? Maybe He's telling the church, guys, that's not how you're supposed to live. Maybe your focus should not be about expanding your kingdom on earth, but about reminding people about the kingdom to come. The hope of a sure future that God wants to bring. What are you doing, my followers? Then the people went out, verse 35, and see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Have you ever thought about the fact that when you truly become a disciple of Jesus, which is as normal as you can be, as whole as you can be, you're restored back to the full shalom, that you're dressed in your right mind and you're at the right place. You're at the feet of Jesus like Mary was, and people will be afraid. Why would people be afraid of people who are living fully in wholeness? Why would people be afraid of a disciple of Jesus becoming a disciple of Jesus? Because you know why they're afraid? Because it shows that they are not whole. It shows how messed up their life has been. It shows how they're living their life chasing after the wrong things. It shows them that maybe God is real. And I've ignored, denied, rejected him all this time. It is a normal thing 
when we are supernaturally restored into wholeness that people may have emotions of fear. Not that we want people to be afraid of us, but they just be so bothered by it. Because it's so otherworldly. It's not the norm. It's not what the culture tells us how somebody should be. It scares people. I tell you what's going to scare people. So one of my, my, my prof, professor, I told you about a little bit of my story. Like his goal is to just be poor. And my, 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 my friend who says he has a gift of being poor. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, you know, the biblical prophet, like John the Baptist, like Elijah. Like, he likes to live in the wilderness and eat honey and locusts. Like, what do you mean? So this prof is like, he's, a, he's an author. He's, he gets paid handsomely. He has a huge house with his seven children and their wives and his grandchildren. Like, the whole household is like a church. But you know what he did? His goal was to give away his money to feel in need so much that he's giving away so much that his friends are concerned that he can't feed his own families at times. But he's never gone hungry. He's always been provided. And so, so he's, he's doing this, and, and it, it disturbed the, the, the suburb he lives in. And people are like, what is he doing? Why is he feeding everybody? Nobody's hungry anymore. And so the soup kitchens, you know, some of you know, the soup kitchens are... are uh, places where you can go if you have no food to eat and they'll, they'll feed you, they give you soup and bread in, uh, in the Western world and Singapore. I don't know why people eat. There's soup kitchen in Singapore too. Right? And so, soup kitchen was out of a job. There were no poor people. Everybody was fed. And there was like pantries that people set up to donate food. We can go there and get, get food. And that was, all the food was not being used up because people had money to buy food before they need food. And so all these established organization was being disturbed by this one family, this one person, from what he's doing. And they got upset with him for living like a Christian. And by the way, I think some of them are Christian organizations. One family's act disturbed the whole community. I mean, I'm glad to say that eventually they came around and, and, and partnered him, but there was a time where he was hated on. Because they're like, what do we do about the donations? What are you doing? He's just like, I'm doing what you can't do for 20 years? And mind you, this person now lives in Hong Kong. He, 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 so he's given away so much, and he's like, ah, oh, enough of the United States. I go somewhere else where you need me. So in the midst of COVID and the protest, he moved to Hong Kong. And he preached from his balcony. So I saw his sermon. Like He's just a phone with a stand, and he preached in his horrible Cantonese. Horrible. And people in Hong Kong can't even gather together more than two. Hong Kong can't even meet for more than two people. Do you know he started 15 house churches preaching from his balcony? Because people are so inspired by this crazy man. And other churches were being disturbed by his act. He said, dude, he said, if you keep doing this, then people won't come to church anymore. Because they don't need to come to church. They're having house churches all over the place. And a few months down the road, people realized that he was doing the right thing because till today they still can't meet in church. And because of his house churches, there's more house churches than before. We will cause fear to people when we start following Jesus in the way he wants us to follow him. Imagine if each and every one of you here open up your house to be a house church and then ASDEC's monthly attendance report I send to the conference. And James, how many worshippers? Uh, 
zero, zero, in 798, zero. Oh, <laughs> maybe James, you're in trouble. Right? Not really, just not in 798. He'll be afraid. I'm sure I'll get calls from higher, upper power. What's happening to your church, James? I just asked them not to come, but to meet where they are and so more people can meet Jesus. People be disturbed. <laughs> 38, 6. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of Gerasene asked them to depart from them. For they were seized with great fear, and he got into the boat and returned. Jesus left these people. They chased Jesus, who healed a man who was possessed by legions of demons for years and years, who screams and shouts in the tomb, who cuts himself, runs around naked, disturbing the peace. And this Jesus restores the man to full shalom, to full wholeness, seated at the feet, dressed like a person, acting normal, and they kick Jesus out. So weird. So that man naturally, right, Jesus, they kick Jesus, they're kicking Jesus out. I better follow him or else they're going to kick me out too. They kicked him out for years, asking him to live in the tombs, right? They bound him with shackles of irons. Then the man from whom the demon had gone, verse 38, begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away. Now Jesus sends this man away, like, get, go away. Not mean, bad, not kick him out kind of sense, but the same sense that was mentioned later as Jesus' commission to save the lost. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Sometimes, though people are fearful, the only person who can go back and convince them to follow Jesus again will be the person who they were once afraid but now continues to live among them because he realized he's being sent. Verse 39, Jesus says, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus has done for him. It's easy to stop here and go, all right, praise God, one disciple, go out there. But mind you, right, this is the equivalent in today's case, if somebody said, this person followed Jesus, he was baptized, he became a disciple, and he went around preaching the gospel throughout Singapore. He didn't just preach throughout Bishan, Topayo, Amokyo, no, no, no. He preached throughout the city, so he preached throughout Singapore, that the whole Singapore knows about this one individual who has accepted Jesus. By the way, do you know how many people he brought to Christ directly and indirectly? I can't tell you for certain, but at least 4,000. The 4,000 who were fed by Jesus, who came to listen to Jesus, who at this point kicked him out, later came to him when he came by the same region again. One man, one person, one testimony, 4,000. And that's a conservative estimate. Because all throughout the region, when Jesus came by, because Jesus functioned in Galilee, and it's just a boat ride across. It's like JB and Singapore. Yeah? And so Jesus would come by again. He, he released, he released this person for a while, 
left him alone to do the work that Jesus left with him. And when he came back, 4,000 people came to see Jesus. One person. And these are not people who are like, no, nah, James, people back then were, were more friendly. They're more like open to the gospel. No, 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 no. These are pagan worshipers. These are people who tolerate demon possession and see it day to day. These are people who, who kicked out Jesus for healing a man. They're not pleasant. They're not like accepting of the gospel. But this one man telling his personal testimony resulted in at the minimum 4,000. And mind you, these, these people are Gentiles. So in a way, they are our ancestor to all of us who are not by blood Jewish people. Among them, most likely they are missionaries who spread the gospel to minor Asia, who spread the gospel to somebody who brought it to China, to, to, to Eastern Asia, to India. And in the end, we resulted from that. We received the gospel from them. So we, in a way, could be descendants spiritually of this one demon-possessed man. So when you come to church, what do you identify with more? Are you bored? Are you burdened, even though you've been a Christian for all these years? Are you burnt out serving, leading worship, doing prayer, doing audiovisual? Bounded by the expectations to, to be a certain way, to behave in a way that you've been told to behave, that you don't really feel shalom at all as a follower of Christ? Is that your experience? Then maybe you are not doing what God has challenged and called you to do as His followers. Maybe you've not embraced the full sending that He's given to you. For years, you've only been attending but not realizing you've been sent and you have to experience the sending. So I'm dreaming every day. I'm dreaming that we will be His disciples not just on the Sabbath, not just from sunset Friday to sunset Saturday, that we will be sent every day. I'm dreaming that we'll be sent everywhere. There's not just limited to church programs, church ministries, or when it's a church thing, that everywhere we go, we will be sent and bring shalom to people. I'm dreaming for us that, that at every opportunity, we will be proclaiming notes. It's a little different from wanting people to observe how different I am now as a follower of Christ. He was actively proclaiming, tactfully, skillfully, but he was actively proclaiming. He was sharing the gospel and his testimony actively. He's not waiting for people to see that I'm, a, I'm different from them. That is the start. But you have to, at one point, proclaim. The people saw his difference and actually were afraid. If you try going to a company and suddenly you go from a lazy worker to a, being a hardworking person because you've accepted Christ, people actually will be annoyed because there's nobody else to blame. They have to start taking the blame for being lazy. The snake is no longer eaten by you. They have to eat the snake, right? It's a Hokkien term for being lazy. They'll be annoyed. And then you just can't just leave it there. You can't just leave it there. You have to start proclaiming why. And I'm dreaming that everyone, everyone that's a part of ASDAC will be doing this. 
everyone. We'll be doing it everywhere with every opportunity and with everyone that comes in contact with them. Every moment. So you need to ask yourself, what is the story? What is your testimony that you're going to tell people about? This man has a powerful testimony, of course. But he went through a crazy, crazy suffering as part of the experience. Some of you say, I want an awesome experience of Jesus. And like every little problem, you're like, Jesus, why? So like, didn't you pray for an awesome? We want the good without the bad. Sometimes the bad can, only the bad can give you the good. Sometimes. I'm not saying it's always the case. So this man, um, Dasra Manji, he's called the mountain man. Uh, don't know if some of you may have heard his story, like, he, was, he lived in a very remote village in India, really remote part of the, the place, and, and his wife was, was critically ill, really, really sick. And the nearest hospital, nearest clinic, was 55 kilometers away. And there was no public transport. He had to go through and climb up the mountain to get to that hospital. And so his wife died. And because of the death of his wife, he's like, he, he determined that he will make a change to this current circumstance. And so what did he do? For 22 years, I think it was about 22 years, he dug and dug and dug with the primitive tools that we all have at home, you can buy from a hardware shop, through this mountain. For 22 years, he committed to one thing, and that is digging through this mountain. And after 22 years, that 55 kilometers became 15. And they have access. And today, because of his work, in honoring his work, they now built a proper road, which cuts down travel time to about one kilometer to the nearest hospital. Did his wife come back to life? No. Did he personally benefit from the work? No. But he left a legacy for his villages. The people there can now have access to the hospital because of his work. Sometimes we don't see our work. We don't experience even the fruits of our work. We don't see the results of our work. But if you know clearly that that's the work that God has given to you, even though it may come from a tragedy, be faithful to it. And ASDAC has to be faithful to our work. I'm dreaming of mission, that this church can no longer be just a church of gathering. We must be a church on mission. To everywhere we are, every place that we go, let's not be gathered members, but be scattered servants of God. Wherever He's calling you, be faithful. Invite the worship team up to bring us the closing song that reminds us as Scattered servants, we have a hope because our hope is in Jesus who's coming again. Let us sing our closing song.